Oh, thanks so much, Brandon, for uh, the kind and warm uh, welcome. It's, it's great to be with all of you this morning. It's early uh, at 9 a.m., so I hope you're... Uh, I know all of you came for the Chick-fil-A breakfast. I'm not offended, uh, but I hope that I can serve you by uh, kind of sharing um, some helpful truths that I believe uh, the church is desperately in need of. Uh, our time is going to kind of be broken into two, three, into three segments. The first is... Um, how I'll, I'll be beginning by talking about like our deformed worship uh, within kind of the, the Christian West or more specifically the, the evangelical world or the white evangelical world. And then secondly, then we'll, uh, we'll transition into a Q&A. And then after that, if I get a break, so if you have to go to the restroom, you can go to the restroom then. Uh, and, then um, and then we'll go into talking a little bit more about uh, kind of the Asian American experience uh, so that people kind of get an awareness or grow in an awareness of what uh, kind of Asian Americans and Asian American Christians are, are processing through, especially in light of the last year. And then I believe after that we have a, uh, a panel which includes some of your um, elders and members of, of your church. And so thank you so much again for having me. Uh, if, if it's okay, I'm going to open us up in prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for the time that we're able to spend together. I thank you for Soma Church and for uh, the work that you're doing in and through uh, this community. We pray, Lord, that your gospel would continue to take root here and beyond and spread to the broader Indianapolis area, to the state of Indiana, and, of course, uh, moving consistently outwards. We pray, Father, that you would uh, speak in and through me, uh, that whatever is of you would stick, what is not would wash away, and that, Lord, people would be edified and encouraged and nourished through our time together. We pray that people would feel uh, supported in their work of pursuing your justice, and if people need to be awakened or challenged in various areas, that they would be so today. We love you, and we thank you, and we are so grateful that we can uh, follow you uh, and, to, and that we are called to be faithful unto death which we ask that you would give us the grace to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I, uh, I don't know if you're able, but if you are able, would you stand? I'm going to read a, a brief scripture, and then we'll get into our time together. In Romans 12, 1-2, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I love that. Just, you just go anywhere in the country and generally people know uh, what to say when you hear the words, this is the word of the Lord. The call of the Christian is a call to worship. The primary purpose of the people of God is to worship. Christians are called to live our lives unto the glory of God. And as we see in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or drink, and in all that we do, we are to do it unto God's glory. So for those of you who are drinking your coffee and taking a bite of your Chick-fil-A sandwich, this is all to be done to the sake of God's glory. This is the call of those 
who declare their allegiance, of Christ, allegiance to Christ. I wonder if I were to ask you to define worship, how would you define it? Right, what does it actually mean to worship God? What is the best definition of worship that you've ever encountered? In fact, why don't you turn to one another for about two or three minutes, introduce yourself if you don't know them, uh, and then share your definitions. Just do me a favor and make sure no one who uh, might have come alone is left out, so look around you, and I'll, I'll give you a couple minutes to do so. What is the best definition of worship you've ever heard? Out of curiosity, just last week, I think I tweeted out the question uh, that I just asked all of you. I basically asked what the best definition of worship was. And included in, some, in the responses were things like declaring the proper worth of something, right? Or worth-ship. Someone else said simple obedience. Others quoted people like William Temple who said, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God, and all of this gathered up in the most sublime praise of which we are capable of. Also quoted was J.B. Torrance, who said, the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Someone said anything written by Harold Best, who I had no idea who he was until I learned was a, he was a professor at the conservatory at Wheaton College, where I work, from the <laughs> 1970s until the 90s, so I'm sure he had some great things to say as well. Uh, Beth Moore, who is a, a well-known kind of speaker, even chimed in, and she said, I often use the word focus to describe it. Seems to me anything to do with focus, deliberately set on God, is worship. Singing, praying, Bible reading, but also walking, sitting, silence, laughing, cooking, feasting, recreating or recreating, dancing, ailing, dying, ever Godward, ever grateful. There were many others, some deeply insightful, others straight to the point. But I would like to argue that here in Romans 12, we find one of the most informative and significant definitions of worship that we'll find all throughout Scripture. What we see here is so significant that N.T. Wright commented that the whole of Paul's written work could be seen as an extended application of Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, which is where we'll be drawing from today. In Romans 12, 1, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and listen to this, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. After laying out a theological framework for God's redeeming activity in the world from Romans 1 to 11, Paul pivots from, uh, for, to the ethical implications of being recipients of God's superabundant mercy. After sharing about the ways that God's mercies played out in human history, culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ, Paul turns in chapter 12 from exposition to exhortation, from creed to conduct, from doctrine to duty, from belief to behavior, from the indicative to the imperative, and from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. But the shift isn't moving from theology to ethics as if they're two separate entities, but a shift from one aspect of the gospel to another, more akin to looking at a sculpture from two different angles. And after he forges the theological framework, the, the first order of business is to call the people of God to worship God in consideration of all that God had done. This is what Paul means by saying, 
in view of God's mercy. In view of God's stunning mercies, the first thing Paul calls for is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is how worship is defined here. To worship God is to offer the entirety of your being unto him. God doesn't just want a part of you. He wants all of you. And in light of all that Jesus had done, um, true and proper worship means that we offer all of ourselves to God. And as this letter was written to an entire church, it's actually a call to offer the whole of ourselves to God in community or in communion with one another. So why am I bringing up this notion of worship when I'm supposed to talk, be talking about discipling about racism? Well, simply put, I believe that racial injustice, especially the racial injustice that exists within and emerges from the church, is the byproduct of a false and malformed or deformed worship. I don't think the problems of race and racism are primarily a sociological problem. Instead, they're primarily a doxological problem. The church is intended to be an outpost of, of God's kingdom, and as such, it ought to reflect the kingdom of God to the world. But in order to do so, she needs to possess the proper posture, the proper practices, and the proper priorities of worship, which is why Paul writes in verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But we cannot be transformed by the renewing of our mind if we remain conformed to the pattern of the world. In the words of James, friendship with the world means enmity against God. Said more harshly in chapter 4, verse 4, he says anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And conformity to the pattern of this world begins with a friendship with the world that, that puts us in opposition to God himself. Conformity to the world hinders the transformation that we're called to. The two are actually at odds against one another. And whether we like it or not, our true and proper worship depends on this transformation. As Doug Moo writes, the transformed life is not an optional second step after we embrace the gospel. It is rooted in and indeed a part of the gospel itself. This is why we're called by God's word to be what Dr. Martin Luther King called transformed nonconformists. Dr. King goes on to say, we are called to be a people of conviction, not conformity, of moral nobility, not social respectability. We are commanded to live differently and according to a higher standard. Yet when we look around, especially when it comes to issues of race, the evangelical church, and I speak as one who longs to see the evangelical movement uh, move towards faithfulness on these issues, reflects the patterns of the world far more than it reflects the kingdom of God. Far too often, the church falls in line with the patterns of racialization and racism more than it resists it. As a result, the church is as racialized or even more racialized than the surrounding world. We know this on part, in part by the fact that on average, churches in the United States are still more segregated than the neighborhoods that they're in. In fact, a study done by Michael Emerson and Kevin Doherty that was released in 2019 reveals that the average church in the United States is still four times more segregated than the neighborhood that it resides in. This is especially tragic <clears throat> when you consider how housing in the United States 
still remains fairly segregated. For the church to be more segregated than the already segregated neighborhood that it's in means that the church in the United States, on average, participates in racial segregation more than it is a force for leading in the work of racial healing and unity. You know this because even when there's an emphasis on diversity, there's often an unwillingness to promote racial justice. Racial justice is simply making what is broken whole and righting the wrongs that have been committed. And diversity without justice, both in the world and in the church, most actually frequently leads to tokenism and perpetuates racial capitalism. Sadly, instead of looking like outposts of God's kingdom, our communities and congregations reflect and propagate the patterns of racialization that consumes the world. Further, if churches happen to be racially diverse and not racially segregated, more often than not, they maintain the same patterns of racial dominance and exclusion that we see in the world. Far too often, the same racialized logics and attitudes that we see in the world keep emerging within the church itself. One of the persistent realities of the evangelical church is that the experiences of Christians of color reveal that our churches reflect the world more often than they reflect Christ. And this failure to reflect kingdom priorities has led to a series of departures from predominantly white churches and denominations by Christians of color, especially by African Americans. We actually saw this with Lecrae, who divorced himself from white evangelicalism in 2017, and then with a series of black pastors, prominent black pastors, um, who recently departed from the SBC. But they aren't the only ones. These departures actually confirm broader trends that were highlighted in the New York Times, where they documented a quiet exodus of black Christians from evangelical churches. They're also confirmed by Christian sociologists like Michael Emerson, who found that there has been a decrease in black Christians that attended multi-ethnic churches, which are still primarily led by white pastors at 70%. The percentage of African Americans attending multiracial churches declined from 27% to 21% in the seven years between 2012 to 2019, after a steady rise in, for years before the years before that. And who knows what those numbers look like nationally after the year we had in 2020, which included the murder of George Floyd, culminating with the Capitol riots by many who held up Christian symbols in January 2021. And of course, we had the Atlanta massacre where uh, six women of Asian descent were were killed by someone who had grew up in a white evangelical church. And then, of course, not too far from here, the shootings uh, at the FedEx facility um, where, nine where, where nine were killed, four of whom were of Sikh descent. I can't tell you how many conversations that I've actually had with racialized, racially minoritized Christians who have been devastated by their experiences in the white evangelical church. And this devastation has actually led to the shipwreck of so many people's faiths. I think two black women summed it up the best when they said they expected the church to be a refuge from the world, but instead found the world to be very much within the church. This was after trying for years to help the church improve with their racial efforts. 
This is perhaps why Dr. King proclaimed, nowhere is the tragic tendency to conform more evident than in the church, an institution that has often served to crystallize, conserve, and even to bless the patterns of majority opinion. The erstwhile sanction by the church of slavery, racial segregation, war, and economic exploitation is testimony to the fact that the church has hearkened more to the authority of the world than to the authority of God. Called to be the moral guardian of the community, the church at times has preserved that which is immoral and unethical. Called to combat social evils, it has remained silent behind stained glass windows. Called to lead men and women on the highway of brotherhood and sisterhood and to summon them to rise above the narrow confines of race and class, it has enunciated and practiced racial exclusiveness. End quote. Do not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To conform to the patterns of the world is to be, as King said, like a thermometer registering and reflecting the temperature all around us. When in fact we as Christians are called to be thermostats influencing and changing the spiritual, moral, and cultural atmosphere of the society that we live in. Unfortunately, as long as we allow the racializing forces of the world to infiltrate and permeate through the church, we will remain conformed to the patterns of the world more than we are transformed by the Spirit of God. And if we do, we will not be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good pleasing and perfect will, which is the second half of verse 2. So then what are we to do? Well, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds is to experience a transformation of God that, that reaches down to the deepest levels of who we are. As conformity to the world is no superficial matter, neither is transformation by the renewing of our minds. This transformation actively resists conformity to the world. It goes beyond impression management and respectability Politics. It, it is a part of offering the whole of ourselves to God in worship. And this transformation occurs as the mind is renewed and moral consciousness and practical reasoning is calibrated to the newness of our lives in the Spirit. This is what the Scriptures call sanctification. Sadly, when it comes to combating racism in the church, there are many who claim to be saved but refuse to be sanctified. They declare their salvation in Christ but reject sanctification in Him. We know this because there's an active resistance to substantively, substantively and death definitively addressing the forces of racialization and racism um, in a large swath of the church. You see, we know we have conformed to the world when we actively oppose efforts to work against the powers and principalities that perpetuates all forms of racialization and racial injustice. This resistance comes in many forms, and all of them fall in line with patterns of a racialized world. One, ex one expression of this is the constant dismissal and the denial of the lived experiences of racially minoritized members of the body of Christ. If not a dismissal and denial, there is a frequent minimization. That can't be true, and they couldn't have meant it that way, and it's not that bad, is it? Cycles over and over and over again. 
Another way that the church has resisted meaningful efforts to confront racism and racial injustice is that for too long, um, Christians, especially uh, when, when it comes to um, issues of justice, have been overwhelmingly negligent about developing a theology around race. Those who have offered a convicting perspective, uh, as, on the other hand, have often also been viewed with suspicion and therefore often overlooked and disregarded. For example, we have little to no trouble embracing and justifying the works of theologians and pastors who advocated for slavery, promoted Jim Crow segregation, supported Chinese exclusion, turned a blind eye to, to Japanese incarceration camps, and completely ignored the reality that we continue to reap the benefits of stolen land. These same theologians and pastors had their fair share of damning indiscretions that many continue to ignore, yet it's still remarkable how frequently Dr. King's sins are brought up as the sins of others seem to go unnoticed, and how the works of people like J James Cohn, for example, are considered anathema, as I know at least one evangelical seminary that's very prominent essentially bans his work. As a result of this, the unbelieving world has done what the evangelical movement has failed to do by producing research and thinking that is often far more robust and more consistent with the weight of reality. Where the church tapped out, the unbelie unbelieving world uh, it tapped in as a form of the common grace of God. Sadly, instead of contending with the work like some are doing, many evangelicals struggle to use words that use the words that best describe the thing being addressed. This, in part, is leading the evangelical movement to display the same problems that we see in the world around issues of race. The church actually offers very little that is considered compelling when it comes to the ways that faith impacts the racialized realities that we find ourselves in. We have become adept at telling people what they should not do, but have failed to adequately produce a theology that shows the world and the church what a full and meaningful life in community can look like. There are many other, wor wor other ways that we've conformed to the world, but I want to focus on one other prominent pattern that has been adapted and adopted by the evangelical world, and that is through the war on words. One of the tactics that the world has consistently employed is to soften the language used when describing racial injustice and oppression in order to preserve the racial status quo. Even if you look at the Japanese incarceration, which those in power adamantly called internment, you would see this pattern emerge. The same people would use terms like evacuee or internees. Think about how soft the language of evacuee is. It's like you're being rescued. I was evacuated when I was in the Peace Corps once because the worst flooding took place in 50 years of history, and they evacuated me. That was an act of benevolence by them. Instead of using a word like inmate, deter detainee, or prisoner, they use words like evacuation, again, instead of forced removal, which is what it was, and relocation center instead of illegal detention center. The words used were actually intentionally utilized to minimize the unconstitutional atrocities committed to 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of whom were American. As George Orwell wrote, 
If thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. Uh, the Christian world in the West has actually adopted this pattern of diluting language to call racism something less than it actually is. And as a result, the diluted language has corrupted much thought. Following the patterns of the world as language around injustice and evil has been diluted, thought has been corrupted. And as thought has been corrupted, far too many of us have conformed to the patterns of the world. And as a result, our ability to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, has been compromised. You see, you can't heal what you won't diagnose. And you can't fix what you won't name. Think of words like privilege, racism, and whiteness. And how we are often hindered from and even penalized for using terms or using the terms that most accurately describe a reality. I still remember being told to use the word advantage instead of privilege, prejudice or bias, instead of using racism, and avoid using the word whiteness at all if I wanted to be, continue to be invited into spaces, which is a lot of the reason I'm so grateful for someone like Brandon, because we had these conversations. I said, where is your church on this? And he's like, we are ready. We're doing this stuff. And I found that in the evangelical world, the, the, the less you actually talk about whiteness, the more you tend to be embraced. But what I've also found is that the less we, tr less we use the words, the more we spend our time trying to figure out what we actually need to talk about. And the less we use the words, the less we actually understand what these realities are. There is a power in naming, which is why racism doesn't want to be named. I do want to clarify that language is and has always been tricky, and it'll take time to cultivate understanding, which is exactly what we are called to do as Christians. This means that we ourselves must commit to unlearning the patterns of the world and, and, and learning the ways of God. We must commit to the deep work of understanding how race and racism function and operate both in the church and in the broader society. And as we commit to transformation through the renewal of our minds, we also commit to walking with others in the renewal of theirs. In your work as a unified church committed to displaying the fullness of the gospel, you might have to start where people are. But as God never abandoned us in our ignorance, we should not abandon others in theirs. With that said, it's important to understand that when it comes to combating racial injustice, we also have to understand that the social construction of race is rooted in the preservation, the promotion, and the propagation of whiteness. The entire racial construct was built around the idea that whiteness in all of its ways is superior to everything else. In fact, blackness was created as a contrast to whiteness, and categories like Asian American and Latino emerged as a way of being seen in the midst of erasure. Even the word Native American or Indian erased important tribal distinctions. As Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote, he, uh, that race is the child of racism. And race at its core was created to build up, to prop up, and to privilege those who are categorized as white. This means we cannot meaningfully talk about or address issues of race, racialization, and racism without actually talking about whiteness. But it's also important to note that when race scholars talk about whiteness, they're not talking about all white people or people who have a phenotype or physical features that are associated with what's often understood to be white. 
to assume that whiteness is, prim is a primarily a biological notion of race is, a, is actually a fundamental flaw in thinking when it comes to race, which actually reveals that people don't know what race is and how it functions. Whiteness is an ideology with profound material effects that forces people to choose between assimilation or annihilation. And I know when people don't understand what race is when they can't use the term white, or when they get immediately defensive when white is mentioned as if everyone, everything in that category is superimposed on them. As I just mentioned, not everyone who understands race, not, anyone who actually understands how race has been constructed knows that whiteness does not mean all white people. Um, I would like to actually suggest that if we can't talk about whiteness, we really can't talk about race in any meaningful manner at all. And a, and a failure to talk about race in any meaningful manner is actually rampant within the, the Christian West. When people use euphemistic terms like Caucasian or Anglo, you know that they're actually living under the thumb of whiteness. Because you know that their whiteness is thin as to be Caucasian means that you can trace your ancestry and your heritage back to the Caucasus region. And to be Anglo means that you can trace your lineage back to England, which erases in important distinctions like being French or German or Italian or Irish. And I feel bad for them. But notice how often people will avoid using the word white even when they don't have tr trouble using terms like black or African-American or Asian-American or Latino, which are also racial categories, just like white is. I was actually speaking at a conference a few years ago, and a fellow speaker was going back and forth about whether she, was, she should use the word white supremacy or white superiority. Right? She told me that she was going to use the word superiority because she was afraid that saying white supremacy would simply shut people down. And I saw her just a month ago, and she said that decision really weighed on her because she felt like she had compromised the truth in fear. She knew that she was catering to white supremacy by not naming it in order to gain approval, which is consistent with what Willie Jennings says about whiteness, that it likes to hide in plain sight. This does not mean that she didn't take the time to explain what it was, but that she still explained it well and thoroughly and didn't name it for what it was. And although she did gain the approval of the dominant white majority by softening the language, it came as a deep discouragement to the racialized minorities who needed something to be straight, something, someone to name it straightforwardly and their rebuke of it. It's kind of like it's calling sin a mistake or Satan a negative spirit or negative energy. Both to her and to others, it felt diluted. You see, words matter especially when they're able to name things as it is. This is why there is such power in naming as we see in the book of Genesis. And words are powerful, especially when they can identify the strongholds that are hindering us. Words are liberating, especially when they can stand against the evil and promote good. And words can lead to worship, especially as they're grounded in the truth of God and in the truth of reality. Words actually find their, context in me or find their meaning in context and in the sacred interactions between people who bear the image of God. As my friend and colleague Kadisha Kelly once said to me, when we resist the urge to argue over words, we can begin to really do the deep work of seeing and understanding each other. And it's only then that we can be transformed and in doing so actually come to worship. 
As Christians, we actually have the great privilege of being able to offer our lives to the living God as an act of worship. This is the, the great privilege that allows us to sacrifice every other privilege we might possess. But we cannot enter into true and proper worship as long as we maintain and perpetuate the patterns of racism. To offer the entirety of ourselves as a living sacrifice is to work against the powers and principalities of racialization and racism. It cannot be done by pretending like it doesn't exist, minimizing its effects, or refusing to name the evil that it is. And make no mistake, racism is evil. The only way it can be done is by actually telling the truth about it and working hard to dismantle it. You see, I don't expect much from the world, but I do have much hope from the church. And as such, my prayer is that, are, that, that Christians will offer an alternative vision to the racialized world that we live in as we truly become cities on hills and lights to the world that display a vision of God's kingdom. I'm actually going to close with this. In a small suburban community, a giraffe had a new home. It was a wonderful home for giraffes with soaring ceilings and tall doorways. High windows ensured that maximum light was going to penetrate through the through the, through the walls and good views while protecting the family's privacy. Narrow hallways save valuable space without compromising convenience. So, so well done was the house that it won the National Draft Home of the Year Award. The homeowners were very proud. One day, the draft, working in his state-of-the-art workshop in the basement, happened to look out of the window, and coming down the street was an elephant. I know him, he thought. We've worked together on the PTA committee. He's an excellent woodworker, too. I think I'll invite him to my home. Maybe we can even work on some projects together. So the giraffe poked his head out the window and invited the elephant in. The elephant was delighted. He, he liked woodworking, and he liked working with the giraffe and looked forward to getting to know him better. Besides, he knew about the woodshop and wanted to see it, so he walked up to the basement door and waited for it to open. Come in, come in, the giraffe said, but immediately they encountered a problem. While the elephant could get his head in the door, he could go in no further. Well, it's a good thing we made this door expandable to accommodate my woodshop equipment, the draft said. Give me a moment while I take care of the problem. So he moved some of the bolts and the panels to let the elephant in. The two acquaintances were happily exchanging woodworking stories when the draft's wife leaned her head over and uh, the, down the basement stairs and said, to her husband, telephone, dear, it's your boss. The draft told the elephant, please make yourself at home. This may take a while. When the draft left, the elephant looked around and uh, saw a half-finished piece of, of, uh, of work uh, on the lathe table in, front of the, in the far corner. So he decided to explore it further. As he moved towards the doorway that led to the shop, he heard an ominous scrunch. And he backed out, scratching his head. Well, maybe I'll join the, the giraffe upstairs. And he started upstairs, and he heard the stairs begin to crack. He jumped off and fell back on the, against the wall, and it too began to crumble. As he sat there dismayed and disheveled, the giraffe came down the stairs. What on earth is happening here? The giraffe asked in amazement. I, I was just trying to make myself at home, the elephant said. The giraffe looked around. Okay, I see the problem. The doorway is too narrow. We'll just have to make you smaller. 
There's an aerobic studio near here. If you just take some classes there, maybe we could get you down to size. Maybe, the elephant said, not looking very convinced. Well, and the stairs are actually too weak to carry your weight, the giraffe continued. If you took a ballet class or a yoga class at night, I'm sure we can get you light on your feet. I really hope you'll do it because I like having you here. Perhaps, the elephant said. But to tell you the truth, I'm not sure that a house designed for a giraffe will ever really work for an elephant. Not unless there are some major changes. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you thankful that we are invited to worship. We pray that we would be people and a community that offer the whole of ourselves to you. May we not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds and consider all the ways that we are called to live out our faith in truth and love. Pray that you would bless the time that we continue to have together and may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We will get going again. How was your short break? <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I know, uh, especially if we, as we're talking about issues of race, and th this, this section won't be as um, kind of straightforward, I guess. Uh, it'll, it'll be much more historical in nature uh, because I do find that a lot of people don't know, kind of, in a, as the president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative, I feel like the, for me to do justice to, um, you know, to the Asian American community, uh, it's important for us to talk about Asian American issues. But one of the things I do find is that um, we have to, if, if things are hard to hear, uh, please do come and ask questions. You know, don't let it uh, just percolate um, in isolation because it's, it's usually in dialogue that deeper understanding emerges. And, um, and so with that said, uh, thanks for being here. Glad that you're here. And I hope that, uh, that what's shared is, is of, uh, of an encouragement to you. I'm going to speak more about like the Asian American experience now, uh, mostly because I think the way that we have been racialized is primarily to become invisible, which lasts, and then when, it beco when we become convenient targets to become hyper-visible, which is what you saw last year. Uh, but one of the greatest things I think uh, that, that emerged as a challenge to the Asian American community, which includes Asian American Christians, is that People don't care about our experiences. And it, it extends actually to Asian Americans themselves. So we find, it's so like for years, people have asked me to start something for Asian American Christians. And in the back of my mind, I, I, and it, I've always wanted to do something, but I always knew that 90% of the battle would be to get other Asian Americans, and more specifically Asian American Christians, because the majority of Asian American Christians out there uh, tend to be evangelicals. And, and again, because what we're talking about, that most evangelicals uh, don't have a robust or even adequate understanding of race, uh, it would be really like 90% of the job would be like Sisyphus trying to roll the rock up the mountain. Or is it Sisyphus? Yeah, Sisyphus rolling the rock up the mountain uh, and then it just kind of rolling back, you know, once you get to the top to, in order for Asian Americans themselves to care. But last year happened, 
And as last year happened, I, I thought this might be the time in which we are able to start addressing some of this stuff. But, but before I kind of get into kind of what we went through last year, I'm going to kind of go through the, the history because uh, a guy named Stephen Yun, who, who um, someone I know and is, works uh, in Hollywood, he, I don't know if you've ever watched The Walking Dead. Uh, he, he, was in the, he was in The Walking Dead and he's been in a few movies after that. He, he actually said in an interview very powerfully that sometimes I wonder if the Asian American experience is what it's like when you're thinking about everyone else but no one is thinking about you. That's what it's like to be Asian American. I think that really kind of put it, uh, it, 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 it articulated the experience pretty well. And there's four real forces that, uh, that plague our community. It's one being perpetual foreigners, right, where no matter what we do and no matter how many generations we're here, ultimately we're never going to be seen as American enough. No matter how hard we try to fit in and become like white, we're never going to be American enough. Uh, which leads to the second thing, uh, which is this force of Orientalism, right? This, this sense that um, we are almost exotified and objectified uh, to be fixed in some sort of like foreign and exotic like uh, 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 trope that's been frozen in time, right? And so or, this is why we call them oriental rugs. And when you think of an oriental rug, you think about something that's like really old and really exotic and really far from another, from another place. So orientalism still plagues us to this day, you know? And for men, it's, it's one trope. And for women, especially for Asian women, it's, it usually comes down to like the the fetish, the sexual fetish. Uh, the third thing is, and, and you saw that with the Atlanta shooting, um, the third thing is uh, the model minority myth, which is a myth that says that Asians are successful in America because we exhibit traits that are ultimately preserve the status quo or are, are satisfied with a painstakingly costly minimal incrementalism. And B, it doubly era erases Asians who don't submit to or fall within the stereotype because it's really hard to get people to see that race influence problems that we face are actually worth caring about. And so that actually leads to something called the underclass myth, where people like a Filipino and other Southeast Asian and even some East Asian kind of populations are completely ignored because they're not even Asian enough, right? So we get, they get erased in the process as well. And then the fourth thing is the honorary white status, which actually is, uh, is something that uh, it's, it's almost like the, anyone seen Squid Games? No? Okay. Okay, so some of you, some of you no one wants to admit that they saw Squid Games in here. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I was like, I, it, I graded on my soul because of the violence, and I was just like, this is too much violence. But it, it's kind of like competing for the second class, the highest second class status. And honorary whiteness is essentially believing that you're in the kind of the gated community of whiteness, and then, real only, and then that you have access to all the stuff that, that whiteness has to offer, only to realize that at any point the gates can close on you. So you think that your house, which looks almost identical to the house that's in the gated community, that your, you know, the amenities that are available to you, all that stuff, is available to you until the gates close. And again, this is what we saw last year. Uh, and so that's something that uh, Asians have been pit against other communities for, and to, and to compete for the status, which is at the heart, in some ways, of what, uh, what perpetuates kind of the, the, the racialized framework and the racialized hierarchy 
which creates a, t a ton of other challenges. Um, but really, to be Asian American is to straddle the tension of belonging and exclusion. Like those are the two tensions that we often face, it, it, and it leads to the erasure of ourselves, which includes the harm that we experience by normalized anti-Asian racism. Uh, where those who are called true Americans, which are oftentimes first white and then secondly black, get to determine whether the plight and the, and the pains of our community are actually worth paying attention to and addressing. If you actually, actually I, should, I do wish I had a whiteboard now because they asked me earlier if I had a whiteboard, but it just, imagine, okay, it, just imagine if there was a quadrant and on this line is access, high access, low access. Right? And on this line is American and foreigner. Who has, in the, if, of the four major racial groups, and again, we don't know where Na uh, Native Americans fit or First Nations people fit because they, they're almost invisible within the racialized framework, but among the, the four major racial groups, white, black, Asian, Latino, who has high access and viewed as American? White. Who has high access? or low access and viewed as American? Black. Who has high access and viewed as foreigner? Asian. Who has low access and viewed as, uh, as a foreigner? Latino. The fact that you know that is a problem, right? Because there are white people, right, those who are white, that don't have high access. There are Asians, in fact, I, just, I was on a call with the White House yesterday, and someone shared that um, seven or nine of the Asian ethnicities uh, don't have, have lower um, home ownership rates than the African American community as a racial group, and then as a Latino community as a racial group. No one would know that because everything, everyone thinks that all Asians are successful in this country, and that's in part because of the, the stereotypes that are imposed on us, that it, it erases some of the struggles and the pains that we experience. And, and a lot of East Asians or successful South Asians will struggle to maintain that because they don't want to be seen as a lower class person, and they want to be seen as a higher class person, and the way to maintain that is by, by feeding into the minor, model minority myth and not addressing the, kind of the, the pains of our own communities. We see this within the African-American community and every other community as well. This is why poor whites are oftentimes not even in the discourse, even though they need to be, right? Whiteness actually harms poor whites just as much as it harms all the other communities. And this is the, the, the brilliance or the brilliant evil of the racial caste system or, or the racialized system of that, that props up whiteness and white supremacy. Um, I actually think I, I created a different, I'm actually in the process of, thinking about writing a book where I created a different framework where, you know, you have whiteness and then honorary whiteness and then you have uh, kind of different tentacles that flow out of that where, you know, the, the line that goes furthest down is, is black because of the long history, the 400 plus year history of, uh, of, of just ungodly treatment towards African Americans and then you have another line that goes this way with the Latino history and then one that's closer to whiteness for some and then there, there's space for nuance um, and how our communities are set apart and are forced to pivot around whiteness. That's why a lot, there's a lack of interracial, and, and interracial uh, uh, solidarity and interminority kind of work together. But that's another kind of talk that I can give another time maybe. Uh, but throughout history, I think, you know, 
Asians have worked hard to belong in the United States only to find over and over that when we are perceived as a threat to the racial status quo, or it's convenient to blame us that we as Asian Americans are, or Asians in the United States are often scapegoated. This often occurs when we actually start making inroads to some forms of belonging, um, and, 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 and you'll see this throughout history. For example, you know, as soon after the Chinese, and you, know, you, you would have seen that the Chinese built the railroad from the West that connected the East and the West as the Irish were building from the East, um, and, and this is where the whole, has anyone heard the term Chinaman's chance? Right, that term actually came out because the Chinese were, uh, in order to have jobs building the railroad, were often required to do like some of the most difficult and dangerous jobs to the point where several people kept dying because they were like hanging off the cliff as they were blasting through the mountain in order to, to build tunnels that the railroad could track through. So they, like their work was far harder than building from the east because they had to blow through mountains in order to get uh, the railroad tracks laid down. And, um, and tons of them died as a result. But shortly after we built, uh, the, after the Chinese built, I'm Korean, uh, the, the Chinese helped build the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, and, and shortly after, uh, uh, the, the largest mass lynching in the United States took place, which was actually against the Chinese Americans. Right in 1871, where one-fifth one, one or one-tenth of the entire population of LA descended on one-fifth or one-tenth of the population of the Chinese people in Chinatown and wiped out one-fifth or one-tenth of the population of, of the Chinese in Chinatown, um, you would have found that, and this was a small population back then, about 20 people were killed and lynched. This is the largest single lynching in the history of the United States, and it happened to Chinese Americans in 1871. Uh, a San Francisco riot also ensued in 1877, where whites destroyed and uh, rioted and destroyed 20 Chinese-owned businesses, a church, and, and, four, and, and then, of course, four people were killed. And then uh, a, lot of people, a lot of this happened because they were afraid that the Chinese were gaining a social and economic foothold in the United States. Um, this actually led to, in the late 1870s, the Page Act, where they decided that Chinese women would not be allowed to immigrate to the United States. So if you look at the history of immigration and a lot of the anti-immigration sentiments, you will find that they're primarily driven and motivated by, uh, by kind of racialized and racist mod uh, uh, mindsets, right? And so if you, t if you connect the two together, it's really important to understand that our attitudes towards immigration are oftentimes tied to our racialized frameworks and our racialized mindsets and defining who is good, who is bad, who is safe, who is not. Because you'll even look at like, the work that World Relief is doing and see that immigrants, and including refugees, contribute far more, which I have a problem with even looking at like, in terms of like, who contributes and who doesn't, because people aren't just what they produce or what they can offer a society. They're, they are what they are because they are made in the image of God and all people are valued as such. Um, but even if you look at it from purely economic terms, refugees and immigrants in the long term offer far more and produce far more uh, for the economic realities than, you know, than the, the kind of typical average Americans would. Um, but they enacted the Page Act in the late 19, uh, 1870s to ban Chinese women from entering into the, the United States because, again, 
the Chinese had just built the railroad. They had just put, pocketed some money. They were starting to build a community, and they were starting to expand as a population. And they thought, well, if we prevent Chinese women from coming to the United States, then maybe we'll hinder the population from growing. That actually led passage, uh, that led the way for the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, where... First, the, China, the, the, the majority of Chinese people, wholesale, were just excluded from the United States, from entering into the United States. And then that actually led to the Immigration Act of 19... Or, that actually led to uh, um, uh, the Immigra Immigration Act of 1927, or the Asiatic Barred Zone Act, where the majority of Asia was actually barred from entering into the United States. So there were some... But for about 80 years, until 1965, Asians were, were, were banned from coming into the United States. So our population, so like I have a problem with representational politics because, again, it doesn't fit with our theology of the Imago Dei. It shouldn't matter if there's one person from Nepal or 100 people from Nepal. We should care about the, the, the person from Nepal simply because they're a human being and what hinders their flourishing, we should care about, right? And so there's more than one person from Nepal, but I just use them as an example. Um, but even in our community, if there's just one, we should care about them. Um, and we should care about what their experiences are. And if there are things that really hinder their flourishing or really hinder their kind of, uh, their welcome into our communities, we should be the ones to adjust for their, for their, for their sense of belonging. Um, but that led to about 80 years of exclusion of Asian Americans, which, again, based on the representational politics of our day, makes it really hard to understand how large the Asian American population could actually be here in the United States. I bet you we could have easily been two, three, four times the, the population size uh, if we weren't excluded for 80 years, and, uh, and people wouldn't be crying out for, uh, for themselves to be seen and such. Um, it actually fueled this uh, Asiatic Bar Zone Act, fueled nativism, and, and attempted to keep out people from much of Asia and the Pacific Islands. And while we were largely restricted from entering into the United States, the events of Pearl Harbor during World War II actually led to an anti-Japanese sentiment. Um, this led to the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans throughout the United States. So there were some Japanese, uh, people of Japanese ancestry here in the United States. And during World War II, uh, I don't know if you know this, but they, they created concentration camps all throughout the country. The Tula Lake, um, uh, Manzanar, you know, there are about, I think there are six to eight of them, 13, six, eight, thirteen, I don't remember what the numbers are right now, uh, but there were a number of them that were propped up. And it was, and the United States was actually so effective at creating anti-Japanese sentiment that they were able to get people from Central and South America to ship Japanese people to the United States to throw them into these concentration camps. People were asked to leave with one bag and leave their homes and enter into these concentration, go to a, 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 a sorting center where they were then sent off to one of these camps. The challenge is when they returned, well, first of all, the, 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 the United States found it unconstitutional what they did, right? So that was one piece. And it was because Japanese Americans were actively pushing against the government to say, hey, acknowledge the, the sins that you committed. But the other piece was that uh, they, a lot of them lost everything that they had, right? And so 
they would um, come back, their farm was taken over, their business was dismantled. I still remember talking to a grandparent of someone that I knew, and he had a flourishing kind of tugboat business in Florida. And that was gone. He, like, he had built his whole life, and all that was just taken away. So he had to start his whole life, whole life and found another place. A whole bunch of them moved to, to Chicago, actually, and to the Midwest, uh, mostly because they, they, when they returned back to their neighborhoods that they were living in before the, incarcer in the, before the concentration camps, um, when they returned back to the neighborhood, they would have signs that says, Japs, stay out, or you know, we don't want you Japanese here, or X, Y, and Z. And so they went from Burbank, for example, to, to the city of Chicago, and there's an organization that actually helped relocate them um, into the communities. And sadly, a lot of them don't even want to talk about it. So there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of shame. And, and because of the trauma of the experience, they're like, we never want to go through that again, so we'll stay. Whereas the younger generations, many of them will stand up and, 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 and advocate, which we saw with, um, with both the, um, the, the things that were happening with, um, at post 9-11, where there was an anti-Muslim sentiment or anti-Arab sentiment, and then with the, the children in cages. Um, there was, uh, at, at the border, uh, they were the ones that were saying, this is exactly what happened to our people, so don't do this, don't repeat history again. But here's what's crazy. If you read, there's a book called No No Boy, which everyone should read. Um, it was a book that was really buried. No one during his lifetime uh, actually read it, and it brings out a lot of the nuances of the lived experiences of Japanese Americans during that time and the inner tension and the struggle that they went through even within their communities and inside themselves and the trauma that they experienced. But as I spoke to many Christians, Japanese American Christians, one story really stood out, which is this one where this man who, and it breaks my heart every time I think about it because you think about this kid, probably somewhere between like five and ten years old. So a lot of you have kids, there's probably kids here that are five to ten years old, who so bought into this idea that America is a righteous nation, that he would go outside when he heard that Pearl Harbor was attacked and pretend like he was John Wayne shooting down Japanese planes. And then the next thing you know, he and his family were being carted off to a concentration camp. And they lost everything. And I'm like, that's a perfect picture of how Asians in America are actually treated. When it becomes too inconvenient, or when it becomes easy for us to be scapegoated, we get treated in a way that we are the China virus. The same thing didn't happen for the German-Americans, right? Some German-Americans were treated with some suspicion, but they were taken case by case. Why? Because they were mostly accepted as white. Whereas Asians didn't matter. They, if one Asian was bad, it spoiled the whole lot. And so all Asians must be bad. You also saw other ethnicities distance themselves from, from Japanese in the same way that the other ethnicities tried really hard not to look, not to be Chinese during the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? So when they saw that the Chinese Exclusion Act was taking place, everyone worked really hard not to be identified as Chinese instead of standing in solidarity because, one, Asian, because Asians lacked a lot of political power and social power. Uh, and the same thing has happened, you know, during the Japanese incarceration. 
Then again, as I said, uh, after, shortly after 9-11, we saw Arab Americans and, South, and Southeast Asian Americans get categorized as terrorists to the point where several of my friends, many of whom worked in Christian higher education, uh, had to reconfigure the way that they looked. And so if they had bald heads as an Indian and had a beard, they had to shave their beard and had to grow out their hair because they did not... They were tired of all of a sudden being stopped at the airport over and over and over again. They were tired of people looking at them a funny way or even murmuring when they walked into a room. And this led to some violence where, where Indian Americans and other Southeast Asians were attacked because they were viewed with suspicion and plagued with hate. And again, a lot of the Japanese people who understood history were combating that. And then, of course, in 2020 last year, due to the rhetoric around COVID-19 uh, as the China virus or the Kung flu or the Chinese flu by our former president, Donald Trump, we saw a spike in anti-Asian racist sentiment where both hate incidents and hate crimes surged against our communities, right? So Asian Americans faced at least two pandemics. One was the COVID-19 virus, which everyone was facing. And of course, the second one, along with the African-American community, was racism. And, and, and this is something that we continue to face this day. So um, someone named Russell Jung, uh, who's actually on our board at the Asian American Christian Collaborative, he, he and two other people signed, um, and he's a Christian, and, and there's actually a, an interview of him that I think really ca encapsulates his heart uh, for, for the Christian faith and for, for Christian witness, and uh, it's a, it should be on our website. If it's not, it's on our newsletter. Um, but he, he and two others had the foresight early on when he started kind of hearing about initial acts of violence against the Asian American community to create something called Stop AAPI Hate. And they actually won the Time 100 Persons of the Year Award just recently. And they were the reason that many of us had, a, uh, had resources and research to basically say this is not just an isolated incident, right? Because a lot of us were going to our churches and a lot of us were talking to our, our, our fellow Christians and saying anti-Asian racism is on the rise, or at least overt anti-Asian racism is on the rise. Like anti-Asian racism has never gone away. Overt anti-Asian racism is going on the rise, and it's going to lead to violence, which it did. Um, and, and these way, major ways of overt anti-Asian sentiment and racism are actually consistent with a cycle that historian Erica Lee identifies as a vacillation of being identified as good Asians and bad Asians. So when we're, when we're viewed as good Asians, we get more of society's benefits. When we're viewed as bad Asians, we get less of society's benefits to the point where we're you know, a targeted, attacked, excluded, and killed. And you see this with like, someone like Vincent Chin in 1982, who was at his bachelor party in Detroit, so just the state to the north of us, when a couple of drunk auto workers started to taunt him because they perceived him to be a Japanese person, a Chinese guy, perceived to be a Japanese person uh, who was taking their jobs away. You heard that before? Guys, taking our jobs away. All you Japanese people are stealing our jobs because Japan was actually doing a better job of innovating cars than the United States were at the time. And then the, the, because Jap the Japanese were taking a greater share of the market, um, it was leading to kind of contractions within the auto industry, and the, that, which were leading to layoffs among the Japanese auto workers. 
And then these layoffs actually led to the scapegoating of Asian Americans uh, who were lumped together under the label of Japanese, where every Asian American at that time in the 1980s were trying not to be seen as Japanese while simultaneously liking the idea that they were Japanese because you know, that's when the rise of Sony took place and all these other major cor corporations and companies. But these layoffs led to the scapegoating of Asian Americans and these two, two white uh, auto workers took notice of Vincent Chin at his bachelor party about to get married, right? And then began calling him racial slurs uh, because they assumed that he was Japanese. And this escalated to the point that, that they essentially took him out back and bludgeoned him to death. And for the first time, uh, really in, in, in history, apart from 1965, where the term Asian American was created in, these, uh, in the kind of the, 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 in the West Coast, because they knew that, they realized that all these different Asian groups or Asian ethnicities were experiencing uh, similar things around issues of race and, and decided that they needed to coalesce so that's when the term Asian American kind of got created. Um, you saw mass protests all throughout the country, uh, especially around like in support of Vincent Chin because people were resonating with the fact that they too were being targeted, uh, maybe not so in the same ways, but uh, it, was very, it resonated with them um, and it was all because, you know, these anti-Japanese sentiments that led all Asians to be perceived as a threat. But over the course of the pandemic, uh, Asian Americans are once again recipients of an inflamed anti-Asian sentiment, right? Asian Americans throughout the nation, young and old, are being targeted, attacked, and bullied, and killed simply for existing in the United States in our Asian bodies, right? Children and youth have reported experiences of discrimination, exclusion, bullying, and assault. I think that the numbers were about somewhere between uh, one-third and two-thirds of all children, all youth, have experienced some form of bullying uh, over the course of last year, if they're Asian. Uh, elderly were also on the receiving end of some deadly attacks. We saw many of those on the news, right? This included an 84-year-old uh, Thai-American man named Visha Ratapaktani, uh, Ratanapakti, uh, who was killed in an unprovoked attack as he was just walking around his neighborhood. A 64-year-old Vietnamese woman who was attacked and robbed in broad daylight in San Jose. Noel Quintana, a 61-year-old Filipino-American, right, who was slashed in the face with a box cutter and a subway in New York, right? Uh, and these are just a few of the heartbreaking, gut-wrenching stories of the people being attacked and targeted and killed for simply existing as, as Asians. And in fact, watching some of these videos, it's hard not to see our own grandparents and parents on the receiving end of such hate. But we also don't want to forget or ignore the many incidents, right, that in 2020 that took place, including, but not limited to, a Burmese family, including two children, a Burmese family, right? They're, they're from Myanmar, so that's not China, um, that were stabbed in Texas while they were grocery shopping because they were thought to be Chinese. Two children under the age of six. So if you have children under the age of six, imagine if someone comes up to you as you're walking out of the Target that Brandon mentioned earlier and decides to just stab you and then cut your kids. That's what happened. A woman in Brooklyn, right, who had acid thrown on her while, they were, while she was taking out the trash. A woman who needed stitches after she was attacked by teenage girls directing anti-Asian comments to her. An elderly Chinese woman who was slapped and then set on fire by 13-year-old teenagers, 13 years old. And then an elderly woman in Minnesota who was kicked in the face by two teenagers as she was just kind of, um, as she was at a, at, a, at, a, at a bus stop waiting for her bus, 
doing nothing, minding your own business. And these don't cover the 9,000 plus self-reported incidents of anti-Asian racism that were actually recorded between March of 2020 and March of 2021. And what's difficult is that even when we bring this stuff up, right, unless it's like heinous and violent, because of the way that it's so difficult to um, uh, identify what a hate crime is or, or uh, kind of label something as a hate crime, we're oftentimes like explained away more than anything else, right? That it wasn't because of race, that it wasn't because of how Asian Americans are racialized. It's not because of how Asians are perceived in the broader imagination of society, that it was an isolated incident to the point where even I was, I walked into Walmart shortly, the first time I went outside of my house when the pandemic, I mean, everyone remembers like, we're never gonna go outside. I'm not gonna breathe in any air that anyone else breathes out. You remember that? Like right now I'm like freaking out because I'm still like maskless and I'm like glad that there's some space between us. But, um, but I still remember going to Walmart and someone, the first time I went out, the, these two white women were walking out and they say, oh, there's another one. And I'm like, another one? Like what, 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 what's another one? And I'm like, I'm the only one that's around me, but there's a ton of people. I'm like, well, what is it that they're looking at? And I was like, is it because I'm a man? No, there's men. Is it because I have clothes on? No, other people have clothes on. Is it because I'm wearing a mask? No, other people have masks on. So what is the only difference was that I was Asian than everyone else around me, right? And I'm like, okay, it took me some time to process. But then a, like a month later, someone, I was outside of my house just reading a book uh, we live on a semi-busy street, and someone was decided that they would just drive by and yell out, you yellow piece of expletive. They don't know anything about me. All they saw was my physical features. And they felt like it was necessary for them to yell as they were driving by th this kind of absurdity towards me. And when I share this with people that I had known, I, that, that, were, that I'd gone to church with, um, they were like, it couldn't be that. I doubt that they said that. That's not true. There's no way. Here in Illinois, in the Chicago area, no way. And I was like, wow, what privilege it is to be able to assume that stuff like that doesn't happen. And it was really sad. It was heartbreaking. It's difficult because the conversations on anti-Asian racism often flies under the radar. And racist acts, and when they are directed towards Asians, unless they're overt, widely understood racist acts, unless someone says, I'm gonna hurt you because you are Asian or I hate you because you're this, like most people, including Asian Americans, because of the ways that we have been racialized in conditions, like my experience at Walmart, struggle to identify something as racist. Instead, we actually have a strong tendency to explain it away as isolated events that have nothing to do with race or minimize it by saying that it wasn't really that bad. That, oh, you know, it's kind of the, it's what you expect if you live in the United States. It's the cost of being an Asian in the United States. It's the cost of being black in the United States. It's the cost of being Latino in the United States. You just have to accept it and endure it because, you know, this is the greatest country in the world. We often think that racism directed towards Asian Americans won't get worse until we find that actually entire laws are created to ban us, concentration camps are constructed to contain us, juries are constructed to prevent justice from flowing to our communities, and words are used to scapegoat us. And anti-Asian racism is consistently argued away as never being that bad until it's really bad, and even when it's really bad, our warped nationalistic tendencies leave us 
neglectful to civically engage in powerful and sustained ways for and with the Asian American community. And so it's really hard to get Asian Americans involved in civic engagement. And what we need is not a flash in the pan, but a sustained growing burn, which is what we're trying to do with, uh, with the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Uh, we actually also need an education and a robust understanding in how race operates within the church and within society, which is some of the stuff that we're talking about earlier. But you know, one of the things that I love about uh, something that just happened in Illinois is how we essentially just passed something called the TEACH Act, uh, which requires there to be some uh, education on Asian American history throughout every school, every public school in the, in, in the state of Illinois. And I was like, wow, you know, like, this is a state that has like a small percentage of Asians, but it's, it's strong enough where they were like, we're going we're gonna to push this. And so maybe this church can be a part of the movement and requiring that for the state of Indiana. Um, but, you know, we're all raced differently. Um, and, my, and, and the ways that we are racialized is different than the ways that African Americans are racialized, which is different than Latinos are racialized. But the, the reality is the thing that ties us together is that everyone is racialized, including whites. And, and the ways that we're racialized is to do whatever it takes to maintain the racial hierarchy. So as long as we maintain the racial hierarchy, um, like, you know, ultimately whiteness is satisfied. Um, but what I think we need more than anything else is to cultivate conversations and, and, and efforts towards racial solidarity that are broadly, broad in its kind of representational kind of constituencies so that we can kind of start transforming the black and white narrative to, to see race as a more robust reality, and so that Asian Americans and other minoritized communities aren't consistently erased in the process. With that said, I think I'm a little bit over the time that I was planning, so we, we can end here. But I kind of wanted to go through um, like a history of Asian American kind of realities and then show how we are in particular racialized, which also means that we are doing a lot of work within the collaborative to highlight the Asian ethnicities, right, that aren't oftentimes seen, right? So the Hmong community, the you know, uh, the Tibetan community, the Filipino community, which again is is the third largest Asian American community. Right? So it's Chinese, then Indian, which became which recently after the 2020 census, census became the second largest, and the Filipino, and then I think it's Vietnamese, Korean, and then Japanese, right? So those are the six largest that constitute about 85% of all Asian Americans in the United States. But we want to care for those who are in the 15% that aren't even named, which I think is a problem.